Throughout this pandemic, a number of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow worshipers with us, have not been able to join us on Sundays. Uh, this morning, we get to hear from one of those people as she brings God, God's Word to us this morning. Uh, Marilyn Smith will be reading God's Word for us now. Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be Thanks to God. Be to God. Indeed, thanks be to God for his word to us, Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Uh, we've been looking these past couple of weeks at, um, at this letter to the Ephesians by Paul and uh, putting it in the context as well of uh, some of the uh, race issues that our country is going through today. And we'll conclude that series this morning. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you um, to name... For me, some of your favorite scripture verses of all time, uh, which ones do you think you would name? Maybe Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or maybe uh, Matthew 11, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface when it comes to favorite texts, but, but allow me to ask you this. When I asked that question, how many of you thought of, of verses like Genesis chapter 12, Exodus 19, Acts 11, or 10 and 11, or, or even Ephesians chapter 1, uh, the text that Marilyn just read for us? When you think about this particular text, this is a text that we as a church actually end up fighting over more than anything. After all, it's got those doctrinal words in it like election and predestination that have caused many a doctrinal brawl in the church throughout the ages. Most of us would rather forget texts like this than add them to our favorites folder. Let me just ask, were there any of you who, who sort of added these to your, your favorite texts? Um, let me just refresh your minds a moment, what these texts are. Genesis 12 <clears throat> is a text where God blesses Abraham. Exodus 19 is the text where God constitutes Israel as his very own special people. Acts 10 and 11 is the story of Peter visiting the house of Cornelius. And then we just read from Ephesians chapter 1. So my question is this again. If these verses or chapters of Scripture were not among our favorites, why is that? Why do you think that is? Why aren't these particular texts 
etched in our minds as if they were engraved in stone. Why don't parents read these texts at the dinner table to their children or, or at bedtime at least once a week? Why? My answer would be something like this. Because we've misunderstood Scripture. And sometimes we read Scripture through the eyes of, of pride. Okay? This is a problem that Israel struggled with throughout much of the Old Testament and even beyond. And this is something that even the church today can slip into. It's this, this struggle with pride and seeing Scripture with proud eyes. So what I'd like to do with you briefly this morning is, is sketch out a new framework for reading Scripture. It's not going to be new for all of us, but it's, it's somewhat of a new framework for reading Scripture that actually stems... Um, stems the emergence of pride within us as a people. It's sort of like a, a pre-emergent um, pride killer, all right? Just like crabgrass. Um, when I was a youth leader, uh, it, it seemed like oftentimes we ended up with a car full of teenagers and we were on a trip going somewhere. And to prevent that journey from getting too boring, Jackie and I would often resort to telling riddles. And so we would throw a riddle out to the car and the kids would have to try to figure out the answer to that riddle. They could only do so by, by asking yes and, no, yes and no questions. There's a lighter if anyone needs one. Um, they could only answer or ask yes and no questions. So this is this, yes, no, that kind of thing. One of my favorite riddles, and don't shout out the answer if you know the answer. I'll give it to you in just a moment. But one of my favorite riddles was this one. A man left home. He made three left turns and met a man with a mask. Where was he? Okay, so let that sink in a moment. A man left home, made three left turns, met a man with a mask. Where was he? All right, I'll answer that for you. <clears throat> First of all, the man with the mask is the opposing team's catcher or the umpire. The man who left home is a baseball player. He's the hitter. He hit the ball. He made three left turns. He returned to home plate and met a man with a mask. Pretty simple, okay? If you can remember that riddle, you can remember a good framework for reading Scripture, I think, because the Bible is all about making it back home safely, making it back to home plate. And when we do, there is doxology. There is praise of God. Allow me to explain, all right? Genesis 1 tells the story of home plate. It's the story of God's good creation and the harmony that exists within that creation. Harmony that exists between God, God and his people. It's a vertical relationship. Harmony also exists between human beings and other human beings. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 happens on the way to first base. Genesis 3 is the story of the fall into sin and the breakdown of all of that harmony that exists there in Genesis 1 and 2. After Adam's sin, okay, God comes walking into the garden like it seems he must have done every morning, perhaps on a beautiful fall morning like this, and he's looking for Adam to walk with him. And what does he find? Adam is hiding. 
Okay? And that same alienation that seems to have crept into God's creation between him and human beings, we find that it also exists between the human being and his, the man and his wife. There's an alienation between them as well. Breakdown of that harmony that God created. That's what's happening on the way to first base. Genesis 3 is first, or <clears throat> Genesis 12 actually is first base. All right? Just think of it as first base. What happens in Genesis chapter 12 is that is the story of God beginning to repair his creation. God calls one of those descendants of Adam, okay, one of those people from whom he has been alienated, and he makes a covenant with that, with that person. That man's name is Abram or Abraham. And God says this in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I will bless you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? Who are the recipients of that blessing? Well, first it's Abraham. Abraham is blessed by God with a relationship with God that must have been much like Adam's relationship with God in the very beginning. Abraham gets to walk with God and talk with God and spend time with God, not because he deserves to do that, okay? not because he's worthy of doing that, but because God is gracious and offered him that kind of relationship out of grace. Abraham is the first recipient of that blessing. But there are other recipients of that blessing too, aren't there? You and I are recipients of that blessing. Okay, but what we have to understand is that you and I are recipients once removed. First the blessing goes to Abraham, and then through Abraham it comes to you and me. We are a part of that line, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That's you and me. We're not Abraham. We're not Abraham's descendants, at least not many of us. We are part of those other nations, the peoples of the earth. The blessing came to us through Abraham. All right? That's Genesis 12. That's first base. Exodus 19 is second base. Exodus 19 is the story of God who has now redeemed the descendants of Abraham from Egypt. He now constitutes them as a nation and he commissions them as his people in his service. Listen to what God says. Exodus 19. Out of all the nations... He says, out of all the nations, you will be for me a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now let me ask you this. Why does God say there, although the whole earth is mine? Why does he have to say that? Is it some kind of rationale that he's making, some kind of argument he's making for why he can choose Israel to be his own special possession? Is it kind of, well, <clears throat> I created and I own all the peoples of the earth, and so if I want to choose one nation to be my special possession, I get to do that? I don't think so. Now, the NIV can be a little misleading here because it says, although the whole earth is mine almost makes it sound like it's a bad thing. Although the whole earth is mine, okay, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Other translations often just use the little word for. For the whole earth is mine. 
I think we could even make it a little stronger. A better translation would probably be because, because the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a special possession. What's he saying? God is saying, the whole earth is mine. These are the descendants of Adam. And I love all the peoples of the world. And I plan to save all the peoples of the world. My, I want to bless them with my goodness and my grace. And I'm choosing Israel because I'm going to do it through them. Okay, through them. But God's goodness and his grace is intended for the entire world, all the peoples of the world. Now, let's again do a location check. Where are you and I in that text? We are a part of all the peoples of the earth. Okay? We're not part of that first group, Abraham and his descendants. We are part of that second group that God says, I've loved since the beginning. And I will some, at some point bring you home. All right, that's second base, Exodus 19. Let's head for third, Acts 10 and 11. What do we have here? Well, we have the story of what we call the Gentile Pentecost. All right? Most of us know the story of, of the other Pentecost, the one that happens in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when the disciples are gathered in one place and then all the Jews from other nations come, right? And, and tongues of fire come upon that upper room. And then we read, we read these words, <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues about the wonders of God. Okay, the Holy Spirit came upon that group and they started praising God for all of his wondrous works. Doxology, right? What we get in Acts chapters 1 and 2, that Pentecost is actually repeated again in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, if you remember, is the story of Peter being sent to the house of Cornelius by Jesus Christ his Lord. And he gets to the house of Cornelius and he's having dinner with Cornelius in his house, right? And what happens? He begins to preach the gospel to Cornelius and all who are gathered there. And then we read that the Holy Spirit came on them. And those people as well began speaking in tongues and praising God. There was more doxology. The Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles and the Gentiles began praising God. Now, Acts chapter 11 actually repeats that same story, except there are some important differences. All right? In Acts chapter 10, Peter is there in the house of Cornelius. He's witnessing all these things firsthand. In Acts chapter 11, he's got to go back to Jerusalem to tell his fellow Christians in the Jewish church there what had just happened to him. And so he starts to tell this story. Well, I was in the house of Cornelius. We were eating together, and they're like, hold on. You were in the house of a Gentile, and you were eating with them? You can't do that, Peter. And Peter says, I know I'm not supposed to, but then the Holy Spirit came. And they began speaking in tongues and what? Praising God. And you know what happened? When Peter told that story to his Jewish brothers and sisters, what they said is, wow, wow. When they heard this, they, that is these Jewish Christians, had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
In Acts chapter 10, it's the Gentiles themselves who lift up their praise to God when the Holy Spirit comes on them. What's so important about Acts chapter 11 is it's the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, who lift up their praise to God because the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. You see, friends, we're on our way to home, pl- to home plate. We're on our way back toward that incredible, incredibly beautiful harmony that God created in the beginning. Because here we see a church that's not only gathered together Jews and Gentiles, but they're praising God for what He has done in bringing those two groups together. Okay? There is doxology when God's story is being fulfilled. Ephesians 1 is all about this, friends. Ephesians 1 is home plate. It is home plate. What's going on in Ephesians 1 is that Paul is writing to a church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles together, but mostly Gentiles. Okay? This is a church that has come into existence through Paul, through a Jew, through his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through that preaching, God is gathering together a church that is made up of mostly Gentiles. And Paul is looking at this church right in front of him. And he's looking back on a history that dates all the way back to creation itself, a history in which God has said over and over and over again, I love all the peoples of the world. And I will redeem them. I will bless them. I will bring them back to myself. And here, after thousands and thousands of years, Paul now stands at a juncture, at a place in history, where he sees that promise actually coming to fulfillment. It's right there before his eyes. We've been waiting for this for thousands of years. And here Paul stands and he witnesses a church where the Gentiles have streamed back into God's presence, back into God's family. And all Paul can do is lift up praise and doxology to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise Him for His glorious grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's all He can do. There's doxology because God is fulfilling His plan of redemption And Paul's message to these Gentiles is that they're not second-class citizens. They never have been. Just Just because God called the Jews first does not mean that the Gentiles are second class. In fact, Paul says, you've been in God's mind and in his heart since the very, very beginning, since the foundation of the creation of the world. And you are like a a child that wandered away. And God has had an empty place in his heart ever since. And he's been longing to bring you back, to bring you home. And he's left the light on, on the front porch, ever since that day. And now, you come home. And Paul says, you can't do anything but praise the Lord. And the air is filled with doxology. He chose us, Paul says. He chose us. Us. And we can say this too, friends. This is us. You and me, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. And don't get too hung up 
on that before creation of the world thing, right? Paul is, give, give Paul a little poetic license here. He's singing a song. He's singing a song of praise to God for what he has done. He's happy. He's thrilled. You see, this is what you reach at home plate when you get there. It's a good thing. It's a thrill to be there. And you fill the air with praise. But that kind of brings us back to our earlier question. I mean, if if this is sort of the big narrative of Scripture, and we are the Gentiles who who have been brought into God's story, God's family in this way, if this is actually our story, why aren't these texts more on the front of our minds? Why aren't these the texts that we sing about and, and, and praise God for over and over and over? I mean, these, these are the texts that tell the story of our salvation. They're our texts. I guess the answer to that, friends, is <clears throat> because somewhere along the line, we do kind of a flip-flop. And we don't so much look at ourselves as, as the Gentiles who have been led into God's family by his grace and his grace alone. But we start to read this story as if we're the Jews. And, and part of that is, is very biblical. When you get to 1 Peter 2, he makes it very clear that we, now as the Gentile church, stand in the place of the Jewish church. And our calling is the same as it was for the Jewish church, to be a nation of priests. But something happened to the Jews along the way to the forum. And it happened to us as a Gentile church as well. Pride. The Jews began to think of themselves as better than the nations that didn't know the truth. And those Gentiles were looked upon as dirty, barbaric. They just don't understand. They just don't get it. And they lifted themselves up in this arrogant, judgmental sort of way, and they held themselves aloof from the nations. They were anything, friends, but a nation of priests. And the same tendency can happen to us, can't it? Where all of a sudden we begin to say, well, we look at ourselves and say, wow, we've made it. I mean, we're pretty good people. We forget who made us this way. We forget who called us out of darkness. We forget who gave us the Holy Spirit. We forget whose family we have been adopted into. And we sort of think, wow, aren't we better than those neighbors of ours? Kind of a sad thing. Why does that happen? Why do we keep veering away from the story of first base, second base, third base, home plate. Why don't we see our call that when we get to home base, it's not just us. It's not just us. 
I mean, God is, is still, even today, gathering more and more and more so that there can be more praise, more doxology. Why? Let me go back to that riddle for just a moment. It's been my experience that <clears throat> there are very few people who get that riddle right away. And I think I know part of the reason. Um, when you tell the riddle and you say, and he made three left turns and he met a man with a mask, that's, that's really... Um, it's not such a wonderful notion. It's kind of a scary thing, right? Present company excluded. Um, masks can be a scary thing. When we talk about meeting a man with a mask, he's usually carrying a chainsaw or an axe or something like that. We don't want to meet the man with the mask. And it's not until, it's not until at some point something flips in your head and you begin to think, well, maybe the man with the mask isn't evil. Maybe he's not trying to rob me or kill me, all of a sudden, a whole new, I mean, the riddle opens up, right? Oh, and then you hear he's the umpire or he's, he's the catcher, and you think, wow, it's really a good thing that I, I met the man with the mask. And, and that same thing can happen in the story of Scripture, There are all sorts of scenarios that we create in our minds, <clears throat> sort of negative scenarios. Some are, are fear-based that, that keep us from ever reaching home plate, right? I mean, think of, think of Peter, the apostle. I mean, suddenly, um, one day, Peter is faced with a, a sheet full of animals, unclean animals, and Jesus himself tells him, you know, go ahead, Peter, indulge, eat. Peter's thinking, what are you talking about? No way. These are all unclean animals. I mean, he has never eaten these things his whole entire life. It's sort of like, you know, my parents taking me to the, 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 the church potluck when I was a little kid and saying, you know, you should eat Mrs. Weirsma's chop suey casserole. And I'd oh, come on. It's foreign. It's, I don't want any of that. It's a scary thing. We're afraid of the man with the mask. We're afraid sometimes of, of getting the home plate when we should be thrilled. When we should understand that this would give our Father more joy than anything. And so we avoid it. And we can't imagine that there's anything good there. Again, we take the prerogative of Israel in the Old Testament. We looked at the Gentiles with scorn. Why would they want to meet with the Gentiles? Why would they want to have fellowship with the Gentiles? It was the last place, the last thing they wanted to do. Friends, oftentimes that same pride, that same arrogance, as I've said, has crept into the church. We've no longer looked at ourselves as beneficiaries of grace, but sort of as a First Nation people, sort of as, you know, a nation with favored status in God's sight. And we begin to look down on anyone different from us. And, and doxology, that praise of God, that wanes. And boasting replaces it. 
Doxology is the praise of God. Boasting is the praise of self. Boasting is what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. He says, you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. There is no place for boasting. No place for boasting in the church. We praise God, not self. That's why we forget texts like Exodus 19 and Acts 10 and 11, because those texts are all about grace. They're all about God's work. They're all about what he has done. They're not about what we've done or what we deserve. Friends, there are two narratives that seem to come out of Scripture that we latch on to. One is true, one is false. The false narrative is that God chose us because we're nice. We're civilized people. A lot of us wear ties and dresses. And as long as we remain nice and civilized, we will remain his people. That's one narrative. And that narrative leads to boasting, it leads to pride, and thus it leads to division. This narrative provides no hope. No hope for breaking down the walls that divide us. The true narrative is that God shows us in Christ before the creation of the world. Before he had even before we had even thought or imagined doing something good. That's when God shows us. He chose us because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he wanted to bring his lost children home and recreate the harmony that we find in Genesis 1. That's the narrative that leads to doxology. That's the narrative that leads to unity. And unity is important. It is important. It's important for us. It's important for the church. It's important to see, or for the world, to see that there is unity, that there can be unity. That's the hope. Friends, it's so important to get the story right. It's so important to get the story right. One of those stories leads to hope for cities like Portland and Louisville and Kenosha and Minneapolis and Milwaukee. The other narrative leads, leads to endless fighting and violence and strife and no end in sight. It's important which story you believe is true. And friends, we don't often get the story right. Okay? Let me just give you an example of what the wrong story can do to the church. Right? Timothy Gombus gives us this example. He writes about this little phrase that's sort of become a part of the evangelical church today. It's, it seems like a harmless phrase. It's a God thing. Right? Have you ever said that? I know I have. It's a God thing. What do we mean when we say it's a God thing? Well, what we usually mean is something like this. I was feeling really down, and then out of nowhere, Steve called. And it was, it was really encouraging for me. It was a total God thing. Can you hear yourself saying something like that? A God thing is anything that's pleasing to me and happens in this serendipitous fashion. Right? And 
if I am in an unfortunate situation and it turns out all right, it's a God thing. The problem with this type of thinking, says Gombus, is that it identifies God as acting according to my own selfish desires. Further, it identifies God as acting only in a pinch. Right? It's when we're stuck in some situation. That's when God acts. God is active only when I have a need and he comes through. That's a God thing. But what about when something bad happens, he asks. And there are not any serendipitous and pleasing escapes from the situation. What happens then? What do we believe then? Is God absent? Is he unaware of what's going on in our lives? Is such a thing foreseen at all in the biblical narrative? Listen to what he writes. What might surprise us is that these kinds of human experiences are common to the people of God throughout biblical history. Gospel actors are called to cultivate the skill of endurance and the ability to discern the presence of God when circumstances conspire to make a case for his absence. God's people are those who bear the brokenness of creation and who hope in God's coming triumph. We may be called to go to we may be called on to go long periods of time while enduring pain and suffering without any quick quick fix in sight. In situations like this, the genuine God thing is that he provides for his people faith, strength, perspective, comfort, and hope. These are not discernible to those who can see God's hand only in favorable circumstances. If we have our imagination shaped by sentiments that that do not come from the biblical drama, we will be unprepared for gospel action. We will not be ready to handle these adversities in ways befitting a disciple of a long-suffering, God-trusting Jesus Christ. Friends, possessing the correct narrative is really important. I mean, it's a God thing. It doesn't seem like that could be like that could do any damage whatsoever. But then you think about it, and sure enough, it kind of steers us away from being disciples of the true Jesus. And friends, we have to always watch the narratives that we're listening to. What's the narrative that we believe about what does it mean to be a good Christian in North America today? What narrative do we believe? What are the things that mark us? Well, we need personal salvation, right? It's it's between us and God. That's part of the story. We have to work hard. We should behave morally. But what about things like, like unity? that really important? Yeah, it's somewhere down the line. That's a dealer add-on, right? It's not part of the, part of the factory, um, what comes from the factory. It's optional. What about, what about yeah, bringing, bringing races together and building up the church of Jesus Christ so that the powers see that Christ has triumphed? Well, 
When was the last time you heard that was part of the evangelical story? Friends, what's the true story? What's the right story? Why is it so important that we see what Paul writes here in Ephesians 1, that God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ? Why is that important? Because that is the sign that God is at work. That's the sign that God is at work. That's what brings more doxology to the world. Doxology is praise of God for what he has done. How did it happen that out of this arrogant nation, Israel, still the Gentiles ended up pouring into the church? How did that happen? It happened because God came himself in the person of Jesus Christ and he loved the Father endlessly to the point of death. He gave himself to death so that the Gentiles might actually come into the church. It was the work of Jesus Christ. What is it today that will create the church, that will mold and shape people like us, so that we will actually think, you know, unity is important, and I'm going to do everything I can to express the unity of Jesus Christ manifestly in this world, in a very real way in this world, what will make us do that? It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that kills our pride and puts love and graciousness in its place. And if it's Jesus Christ, if it's his work, then what do we do? We lift up doxology. We praise God. It's not going to be us. It's not going to be you or me that solves the race problem in this world. But Jesus Christ can use us, can work through us. It will be him. It will be God. And it will bring him praise. We need more doxology, friends. More doxology. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are our only answer. Lord, we long to be the answer to all of the sin problems in this world. But we don't have it in us. Lord, we need transformation. We need you. To place your spirit in us, the spirit of the long-suffering servant, Jesus Christ. The Christ who actually thought unity is really important. Just as important as as living a sanctified life. In fact, it's part of a sanctified life. And so, Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit. Kill off the old self within us that we may live for you. That you may receive praise as the result. Lord, we long to see your church throughout the world, standing together, unified, learning from each other, serving one another, growing, growing not just in number, but growing in depth and in unity, growing in the truth. We long to see all things, all things in heaven and on earth, brought together under one head, even Christ. 
We are your church and we pray. We pray for you to do this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.